Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, where we learned a few things after 200 plus interviews in nearly three and a half years in service to each of you as you develop your own leadership skills that in many times, the most listened to, downloaded, watched, commented, rated, reviewed podcast episodes were the people who you could relate to. They weren't always the untouchable celebrity or the perhaps the governor or ambassador that you enjoyed learning from, but it was hard to relate to. The most popular episodes are the ones of people who've had career journeys where you could learn from and replicate even in your own lives, which is why now we've launched this new podcast, C-Suite Conversations. Today, I'm honored to have a business titan, an entrepreneur that has not been without both success and challenge in his life. His name is Narin Chaudhry. He is the CEO of Panera Brands. You, of course, know as the fast casual chain of restaurants that includes many sub-brands, including Caribou Coffee, Einstein Bagers, Brugger's Bagels, and others. He's also the CEO of Panera Bread, one of the companies that makes up that portfolio. Joining us today from Boston, Narin, thank you for joining us on C-Suite Conversations. Great to be here. Narin, before we talk a bit about some of the lessons you've learned at the helm of the Panera Bread, would you take a few minutes and walk us through your professional journey? You've worked for some of the biggest brands in casual dining and in fast food restaurants. You have a multi-decade career. Would you talk about some of the brands you've been involved with, including some of my favorite that we love to eat on a nearly weekly basis in the Miller household? Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I've uh, spent about close to 30 years in the restaurant business, uh, 25 years with the uh, Yum Brands, which is KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. Um, my last job with Yum Brands, I was the global president for KFC. And before that, I ran our businesses in Europe, in Netherlands, in Germany, in the UK, and then also in India. Uh, so fantastic experience with an incredible company. And then after that, I joined uh, JAB, it's an investment uh, fund. And uh, as part of that, I was the operating partner and uh, working for Krispy Kreme as the chief operating officer. And then recently, as you mentioned, CEO of Panera Bread and then Panera Brands. So, you know, uh, fantastic journey it has been for me uh, working in the restaurant space with some incredible brands. I mean, let's be straight. I mean, the chicken pot pie at KFC is amazing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the chocolate cream filled donuts at... Krispy Kreme. I mean, when we were, when I was raised in Orlando, there was a Krispy Kreme donuts back in the early 80s. We would go there on a Saturday evening and watch all the donuts on the conveyor belt come down. Oh, yeah. And if my mother wasn't looking, my father would order us a second donut. We would devour it before she realized it wasn't the first one. But you've worked with some of the biggest, most iconic brands in the industry. Now, of course, with Panera. Will you walk us through again the, the companies that comprise the Panera, Panera brand? Sure, Panera Brands is one of the world's largest fast casual platforms. Uh, we have about 3,800 cafes, employ 120,000 people across 11 countries. And the brands that we have under that platform are Panera Bread, of course, it's the largest brand, Caribou Coffee, and then Einstein Bros Bagels, which also has Manhattan, Noah, and Brugger's Bagels. So that is the uh, portfolio that, uh, that I'm uh, currently stewarding. You basically have cornered the market on bagels in the U.S., have you not? So, uh, yeah. I want to talk a lot about some of the leadership lessons that 
you've learned throughout your career, especially, of course, the pandemic, because there's no doubt you have some insights to share there. Narin, I first would like to approach a separate topic, which you've actually given me permission to talk about today. You and your wife, of course, are the parents of three children, two of which have passed as the results of a fairly rare and tragic uh, genetic disorder. Would you perhaps show some vulnerability, as you've done very graciously in other interviews, and talk about your family, what it has meant for you and your wife to lose two of your three children. What are some of the lessons you've taken from that in terms of perseverance and gratitude and inspiration? And how does it perhaps both maybe um, get you down and maybe even fuel you on certain days? I no doubt there are millions of people who will watch this podcast that have experienced some level of setback or trauma or tragedy in their life, or perhaps later in their life they will, and might even draw upon this next few minutes with you. Take as long as you'd like to discuss what you've learned from the passing of two of your three children. Thank you, Scott. Um, well, it all started with, uh, with my wife, of course. Uh, I met her when she was 14, uh, and it was love at first sight for me, not quite for her. Uh, I was 16, she was 14, and we decided to get married. And, uh, you know, she's my childhood sweetheart and my best friend. And uh, that has been a magical story. But, you know, we've had our share of challenges, as you mentioned. Uh, we produced three beautiful children, but two of them, unfortunately, passed away. I lost my first daughter, Tanya. She was only eight months old uh, to a rare uh, immune disorder. Uh, then I had my son, Ishan, who uh, fortunately is in good health. He's uh, 30. He's a... He's a musician uh, and very successful, lives in the US. And then I had my daughter, Aisha. Aisha was born with uh, the similar immune disorder and she passed away when she was 18 years old and obviously was uh, one of the toughest things I've had to deal with has been the loss of my children. But you know, um, like you said, uh, all of us deal with our own losses and struggles in one way or the other. and. Uh, I, I believe that uh, we are not shaped by what happens to us. I think we are shaped by how we choose to respond to what happens to us. And that's what you know, truly shapes us. So I was inspired and I have been inspired by both my daughters, Aisha in particular, who lived uh, for 18 years and achieved more in those 18 years than many of us achieve in a lifetime. So you know, she was a motivational speaker. She's written a, um, a bestseller book called My Little Epiphanies, which is on Amazon. And then mm. her life inspired a movie as well called The Sky is Pink, which is on Netflix. And if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend a watch. It's a fantastic uh, movie that, that captures her incredible story. And I think um, my children's story is about not a tragedy of you know young lives that, that, that uh, went away prematurely, but more about uh, a story of of resilience, um, uh, a story of gratitude, a story of embracing the hand that you're dealt with and then jumping as high as you can from wherever you are and be the very best version of yourself that you can be. Um, so my daughter, for example, when she Aisha, when she confronted her mortality, that's when she decided to live life to the fullest. Mm to make every single day count and every moment magical. Um, and, you know, that has really sort of resonated with me. And I have also resolved that um, we're all going to die, you know, 
<laughs> that's the eternal truth. So may as well have a blast and live life to the fullest, make every single day count um, and, and, and create an impact uh, around you. So I have redefined my own purpose in life to inspire myself and those around me to be the, to be the very best version of ourselves in whatever we do. So that's how it's impacted me. And of course, I have uh, many other insights and lessons from Aisha's life, but that, that kind of captures it. Nirin, thank you for sharing that. You aren't an expert on grief or recovery, but certainly perhaps you are because you've lived through it. What advice might you give someone who's listening or watching right now that has lost a child or a spouse or a friend or a partner or colleague in the midst of a pandemic or some other health or perhaps tragedy? It, when, when you are feeling defeated, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're trying to put this into perspective, any tips you would give for people that might be going through something similar or dissimilar that might buoy them in this moment? You know, um, I think the first thing is to really, to really absorb and feel the loss and to emotionally almost cleanse yourself and to really feel mm. the pain. Uh, I think not dodge it, not try and manage it, but to really fully embrace it and feel that cleansing of that emotion, I think is so important because only in doing so do you get some level of acceptance and you can start uh, the journey of moving forward. So that's the first thing. The second thing I also realized was how important it is to once again, the way out of your loss is actually uh, being able to love yourself again. And, and that, that is how you heal yourself, is by loving yourself again, by forgiving yourself. Because there's invariably guilt around, you know, having failed the people that are around you in some situations. So loving yourself and, and, and realizing that the only way you can be of use to other people is by first loving yourself in order to heal yourself. I also feel that to get a sense of empowerment, because there's such a lack of control over this act of finality that happens around us, one desperately needs to feel that one is empowered. And the only way you can do that is by having the courage to focus on that which you have control over and not what's happening to you. To slowly to start focusing, okay, this has happened to me. What can I do with it? Yeah. How can I channel this into something that is you know, positive and purposeful and has an impact? I also find my daughter used to say that if you can't change your own life, there is always somebody else's. So you can seek a lot of emotional healing in showing compassion and respect towards those around you and trying to play a part in helping others you know, deal with their difficulties. And finally, I think, I think this, um, this word picture always uh, sort of gives me strength whenever I'm feeling down and out is you know, this aspect of resilience that life will knock you down, but you got to get up and you got to fight the good fight. You'll get knocked down again and you got to get up again and you got to fight, fight the good fight again. And I think we can't help getting knocked down, but we can certainly help getting up and being the very best that we can be in dealing with whatever life throws, throws at us. So those are some of the things that I have tried to use uh, to sort of get to the other side. Um, and, and in a way, get inspired by that pain in the way in which I show up 
um, and, and live my life. Beautifully said. For the benefit of our listeners and viewers, would you repeat one more time the name of your uh, late daughter's book and the name of the movie? Yeah, so my Aisha's uh, book was called My Little Epiphanies. It's a collection of her thoughts as she lay dying in the last two months uh, of her life. It's on Amazon and it's a bestseller. And the movie that, that has been made uh, inspired by her is called The Sky is Pink and it's on Netflix. Thank you for that. Uh, I'll be doing both of those today. I have my assuredness on that. Uh, like you, I probably became a better leader once I became a father. I have a, I'm the father to three young boys with my wife, Stephanie. And I'm guessing you've become a different leader as the result of having lost two children and had um, unspeakable tragedy beset your family that you're owning and solving and moving through. What kind of leader are you as a result of having both been a parent and having lost children? Yeah, I think it has uh, deeply impacted who I am and how I show up. Um, so firstly is the realization that the job of any leader is actually to inspire and create trust. And that trust is a function of both character and competence. I think very often we realize it is a function of competence, but we may not always realize that it's a function of character as well. So as we develop and grow our leadership journey, we have to nurture and grow not only our competence, not only getting good at what we do, but also how we show up in terms of our character. So character is massively important. The character in, in other, in, in actually, for me, uh, see the metaphor of a tree. And if you imagine that the leaves are like the behaviors that are visible to other people, but the trunk of the tree are the thoughts that shape those behaviors. And under uh, the tree, under the soil that nobody can see, the roots are the values and beliefs that drive those thoughts, mm -hmm. that drive behavior, that shape your habits, create character, and that's what defines destiny. So I think if one needs to build character, then surfacing our values and who we are and how we show up and what we are committed to is so critical. So that's that's been very important to me. And, and some of the values I shared you know, like courage, like curiosity, resilience um, are very important. And I think therefore, the first thing is recognizing that as a leader, I need to build trust. So what are my core values? That's the first one. I think the second one is, I think I, I realized that nothing stays the same and, um, you know, everything changes uh, in our personal lives, uh, in our professional lives. And therefore, I think it is it's so important to have this mindset of learning, but then unlearning and then relearning and then continuing that loop. And what is very important is that we all recognize the importance of learning. But I've realized that very often you have to unlearn what you have learned, <laughs> mm. you know, and that's quite hard. And because not not what you, what you have learned is not going to be relevant forever. So you have to have the agility to unlearn and then relearn. So that's the second thing that's been uh, very important to me. I think the third thing I, I do feel is that in today's world, more than ever, leaders, brands, businesses have to be force multipliers for good. Um, I think business success, enterprise value creation, to me, is the output of doing the right things the right way. And therefore, I think having a broad impact agenda that embraces the dreams of the people who work with you, impact of the community uh, in which you operate, but also giving back to the to creating the right planet, uh, I think are very important components of anybody's leadership journey. 
And I think it would be irresponsible for a leader not to have an agenda that is a broader uh, impact agenda. So those are some of the things that you know I have uh, I have realized and learned uh, as a result of my my own experiences. Narin, it's not lost on me that you're using many of the terms that we teach at Franklin Covey, circle of concern, circle of influence, character, competence, form, trustworthiness. Uh, this may sound self-serving, but I'm going to venture to guess you've read some of our books. To the extent that's true, what are the books that you have read, whether they're ours or others, that have had the biggest influence on your own leadership journey? Well, I have to confess that I read The Seven Habits uh, in my late 20s, and that has certainly been a book that has deeply impacted me and shaped the way in which I think and the way in which I show up. Uh, so that has certainly been a, a huge, uh, huge inspiration to me. Um, and I think we talked about, you know, uh, beginning with the end in mind, um, you know, and, and character and competence and circle of concern and influence. Another one that I, I, I find a very powerful um, lesson there is about sharpening the soul. I really believe that, you know, um, for me, for example, my sense of fulfillment comes from me being able to strive for excellence in every single role that I play in life. So I show up as a as a business leader, as a coach, as a coachee, as a parent, as a father, as a spouse, as a friend, as a sportsman, spiritual, etc. And I think it is I will find fulfillment if I seek excellence in all of those endeavors mm -hmm. and roles that are important to me. And that is another that has been a really powerful um, uh, way in which I refuel my jets. You know, I, I always make, make, make sure that I'm taking time to fulfill my needs uh, in this multi-dimensional way and not just have a one way in which I show up uh, in the world around me. So I would say Stephen Covey's book uh, has impacted me a lot. You likely speak for tens of millions with that answer. Uh, let's talk for a moment, Naren, about leadership competencies. I'm going to do a bit of a speed round with you and talk about all things leadership competency related. Would you think of a leadership competency that you now think is outdated? That perhaps it was relevant the last decade, relevant pre-pandemic, that's not anymore. Something that maybe you think people should unlearn or relearn differently. What's something that's outdated and no longer valued? Well, I think, um, I would say, you know, when I think of leadership competencies, the broad framework of what that is, I think is relatively unchanged, which is, you know, set the vision, have a strategy, build and align teams, um, get things done, collaborate, you know, those competencies, I think broadly stay the same, but I think the definition of what lies underneath has changed dramatically. Um, I think the pace of it uh, is, is dramatic in terms of the, the, the world that is changing around us, the competitive landscape that, that is changing around us. Therefore, I would say the need for speed and agility of learning, unlearning, relearning, and actually for the, the leader of the company to be current uh, with competencies of the future, which is you know technology uh, and everything to do with technology, uh, which is innovation, uh, which is new frameworks, new business models, I think is so important. So I would say the broad definition of competencies for me, 
are more or less time tested and 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 uh, remain intact but what lies underneath hmm. has definitely changed dramatically yeah yeah uh take that a step further of those overarching competencies you list about vision and strategy collaboration building teams getting stuff done creating a culture of trust which of those do you think you particularly model the best oh yeah that's a that's a great question and i have to just step back and share with you my business philosophy. So I believe that I turn up for three things. Create enterprise value, unlock the dreams of the people I work with, and serve our community. And to be able to do those three things, I need to have a strategy, which is how will I win, and then execute the strategy. I, I passionately believe that strategy is, is important, but execution is disproportionately important because strategy is to do with the intellect, and it's easier to do. Execution is about the heart and firing up that passion and the desire to win in thousands of people across the enterprise who wake up every single day passionate and determined to out-execute everybody else, and that's very hard to do. So therefore, execution is everything. Execution, therefore, in turn, for me, is a function of the right people doing the right things the right way, and the right people is a function of of recruitment, right things is prioritization, and the right way for me is culture. So if you if you are getting the right people in the company in terms of capability and you have the right culture, then you can execute better than anybody else and that's how you will actually win. And I consider my biggest role to be a champion of my people and my culture. So making sure we are hiring the right people in the company. And to me, culture, a definition of a culture is, for me, is a special feeling that you create through a common language that creates consistent behaviors. But it's a special feeling. Um, I, I believe that you know culture is the output of, of uh, hiring like-minded people. Like, like they say, you know, you hire for attitude, train for skill. So I am the guardian at the gate hmm. for people and culture. Yeah. Uh, nicely said. Uh, take a moment with some introspection which of all of those competencies or perhaps some other competency do you think is your biggest area of growth? Meaning you don't do it very well and you're mindful of it and perhaps the board or investors or your direct reports kind of tell you they wish they, you were better than this. <laughs> is there something that you're working on that you would share with us? Oh, of course, of course, uh, all the time. So I think uh, my biggest issue, and this has always kind of plagued me and I keep thinking I'm getting better, but you know, I have long ways to go. Um, there are a few. And, and here's the thing, you know, I, I have realized that whatever is your strength is a mirror image of a weakness. Mm. And I think, I, I really believe that one's development comes from not from attacking one's weaknesses, but more about being more mindful of one's strengths. So that the strengths show up as weaknesses, and I think that's what is actually more damaging. So for example, I have, I love ideas. You know, I like get dazzled by ideas. I love learning, as I mentioned. Now, the flip side of learning is that you can, if you're not careful, and you release all your learnings into the organization, you can get, create chaos <laughs> because people are not sure what's truly important. So a lot of the coaching I get from people yeah. around me is, hey, listen, try and be focused and yes. disciplined. Yeah. You know, um, another, another strength of mine is people and culture, like I mentioned. You know, I, I'm very people-focused and culture-orientated. But the flip side of that can be I can be blindsided because I take things at face value 
And as a CEO, I may not always know what's going on because I just I just trust what's being told to me. And therefore, the intervention is that I must seek out truth tellers who tell me exactly what's happening and encourage you know, candor in our conversations so people can come and tell me the bad news as well. So those are some examples of how my strengths might show up uh, in unintended ways and, and become an opportunity. I really appreciate you sharing that because that is profound advice for leaders at all levels, right, is to seek out truth tellers to tell you what's really going on because you may not understand your full power. You may not realize how intimidating it is to meet with the director or the vice president or the CEO and you've got to stay connected to the truth tellers in the organization. Niren, to that matter, is there anything you do in particular to make sure that innovative ideas at the front line, you know, in, in a restaurant or at a district level, make it up to the C-suite so that you know what's really happening and does, does something inspiring or innovative that's percolating at a store level need to be considered perhaps brand-wide? How do you make sure that you're setting the vision and strategy, but still you have an agile and nimble mind to know what's going on with the customer, with the actual frontline employee? Yeah. So I think uh, before I uh, respond to that, I just wanted to share with you some example of what I mean about being being told the truth. and how, Because it's not easy when you ask somebody for feedback and you're the CEO. Right. And you say, tell me one thing that I can do differently. And they say, no, you, you're, you're so good. Right. You know? Everything's great. You're awesome. <laughs> Everything is great. You're awesome. And, you know, so I've learned a fantastic question that is very difficult to escape when you, uh, and I ask that in, in all my one-on-ones, which is, Tell me one thing that I can do differently. Now, it's very hard to say there's nothing that you, you can do differently. And you're not saying, you know, give me a, a constructive feedback. And I think I find people feel safe with that kind of question. One thing that I can do differently, and that normally opens up the door uh, for a better conversation. The other thing is uh, we've also established team rules and meeting rules. And one of the rules is that we will not make a decision without a disagreement. And we said, if you're all, all agreeing very, very quickly, then we're going to keep sitting till somebody disagrees. And I think, again, you make it easy and okay for people to uh, be, be the minority voice and disagree with what's being said. So just a few examples on, on how you, know, you want to make sure that people have, are feel comfortable in, in expressing what they truly feel. I think to your question around innovation and uh, at Panera, by the way, you know, we, we have this massive sort of a, uh, we, we have this DNA of being restless and innovative and constantly raising the bar and, and, and setting new standards. So inherently, we have a very innovative spirit uh, in the company. And the company is proud of it. And, and you know, it, it, it basically uh, shows up in different ways. And we have created different forums. Um, one of my favorite forums is we have, uh, uh, on our technology side, uh, you know, we have a, a forum whereby once a year, we will create teams. Um, and these teams will be given a couple of business problems. And these teams have people from all through the organization. And they also pair up with uh, external companies like Amazon, Google, and so on. And then we, we'll, we call it like a two-day hackathon. And in this hackathon, these teams will be given a consumer problem. And they'll, give, they'll be partnered with an external vendor. And they have to create a prototype of a solution. Mm-hmm. And then they come and pitch it you know, to, to, to the executive team. And then we choose a winner, and then we fund that project. Uh, so it's almost like creating mini entrepreneurs within the company and encouraging that. So that's one of the examples of the ways in which we we encourage a lot of innovation. 
um, and, and make sure that we're involved and we're involving people uh, as we pull innovation uh, from the ground up and in this and in many other ways. Narin, you realize that the outcome of joining this podcast is that every publisher and editor in America that's watching this is going to be calling you about writing a leadership book for them because there's so much wisdom in your decades of journey. I look forward to that book coming out. Uh, our time is tight, so I want to ask a couple of questions around your sure. leadership philosophy. Can you think of a time when you've had to make a really unpopular decision that you knew was going to cause upheaval or perhaps it would even impact people, but it was the right thing for the brand, for the culture, for the community, for the overall health of the organization. Is there a specific time when you had to take and make an unpopular but vital decision? And what was your decision-making process and how did you go about that? So I think uh, several, I think, uh, and that's, that's those moments are when your leadership character really shows up. That you have, you know, on this spectrum of love and respect uh, in an organization, you're not tempted to always move in the direction of love. You know, you, you want to basically uh, have the right balance and do the right thing for the company in the right way. Uh, I think a recent example that comes to mind is when I came to Panera Bread about three years back, and my my mandate was transformation, and the transformation becomes with the begins with the executive team that you want to make sure that the leadership team is fully aligned behind what needs to be done. And there were there were a few leaders who were uh, terrific leaders, had already been there for many years, but I felt that they they didn't have you know the uh, the cultural uh, values uh, or the competencies that I was looking for to rewire the company for the future. So very quickly in, uh, I had to make the unpopular decision of moving on some of these executives who were deeply loved, deeply, deeply loved. And I was kind of, kind of coming in from the outside. I had very limited credibility. People didn't know me and they saw me as, as somebody who's coming in and just being you know disruptive and uh, uh, moving on executives who were... Um, you know, who had been tenured and, 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 and were very sort of loved by the organization. But I, I firmly felt that I, I had to do it. Um, and, you know, I think whenever I've done something like that, and I'll give you another quick example, I really believe that be brutal with the truth and then have a huge amount of humanity and compassion in the process. And if you do both of those, you can still end up being respected for the decision that you take and how you execute. So it's, you know, you can take a tough decision, but if you handle it with humanity, I think it's okay. Another very tough one was, you know, when I had to follow 36,000 people during the pandemic. And I personally felt uh, very sort of impacted by it because, you know, it, it impacts the frontline front employees more than anybody else. But again, you know, brutal with the truth and what needs to be done, I had to follow them but show up with compassion. So I, I reached out to Walmart and CVS CEOs because I read that they were hiring people and I said, could you employ our people temporarily? And then uh, once my business is back, I'll, I'll take them back. So we set up this, this process where they could be temporarily absorbed by these other companies and then we could take them back. So I think very, and this is these are one of many examples, but I think the, the, the playbook in my mind is always that do tough things, but do them with heart. Now, no one knows this story. What you just said was that during the height of the pandemic, you ultimately, as the CEO, had to make the decision to furlough 36,000 employees. We were in the midst of a global health pandemic. And 
one of the measures you and your advisors took under was to contact the leadership of, you said, Walmart and CVS to determine could they employ some of your team members on a temporary basis until you were allowed or able or felt comfortable Correct. reopening back up. Did that work out? Did, did, did some yeah. people, how many do you know? How did that work out? So I think it worked extremely well. Firstly, I think our, our associates felt that, you know, we cared for them. Um, and uh, uh, we had, uh, you know, people, uh, many people who took that offer to join CVS and Walmart. And then I think within about, from memory, about five or six months, we were able to absorb all of them back and get all our employees back into the, into the enterprise. Another thing that we did with furloughed associates was we told them that you can come every week, once a week with your family and have a free meal at the Panera Bread nearest to you because we want you to know that you're not forgotten. You know, we did town halls with our furloughed associates. We sent them gift cards. We wrote letters to them because, you know, we just put ourselves in their, their shoes and said, you know, it already sort of is a bad situation. Imagine how you feel if you feel that nobody cares for you. And we did not want to show up like that, you know, for our associates. And I think that meant a lot to them. Our cafe general managers, we didn't let go of a single cafe general manager across the 2000 stores that we have because we we deeply, we think the cafe general managers are our most important leaders. So even, even though we could not afford to, we kept all of them with us. And I think as a result of all of that, I think our people metrics are amongst the best in the industry. People love working for us and people, you know, don't forget how they get treated when times are tough. That's right. So I think, you know, so, so I think showing up the right way, not only for our associates, we did similar things for our customers and for community through the pandemic, because our mindset was, this is not only about preservation of the balance sheet and protecting our brand and business. This is not only about safety of our associates and our customers. This is also about showing up as, as a responsible company and a citizen and building trust with all of our important stakeholders, associates, community, and customers. You just clearly described the culture at the Panera Brands and all of its uh, uh, sub-brands. Thank you for that. Uh, Niren, a few episodes ago, we had the honor of interviewing Amy Errett. She is the founder and CEO of Madison Reed, the wildly successful hair coloring company that has both um, salons around the nation, but it was a massively successful enterprise prior to and now post-pandemic, women around the nation coloring their hair at home. And uh, one of the interesting things that she mentioned was before she founded uh, Madison Reed, named after her daughter, she worked at a VC fund, I think in San Francisco, when Dollar Shave Club came across her desk, so to speak, and through her and others' counsel, they decided to pass on Dollar Shave Club, probably not their claim to business fame. But then she used that idea to figure out, so what's the corollary of Dollar Shave Club for women? And that's how she decided to invent and create this wildly successful company, Madison Reed. Similarly, is there a time in your career when perhaps an opportunity came across your desk and either you failed to act and now regret it or you did act and you regret it or you're happy or vice versa, is there a lesson to be learned in how you've honed your intuition, how you use your experience and your feelings combined with facts and data and truth tellers and understanding kind of where the puck is going to be. Any story you would share, positive or perhaps critical, that's had a material impact on your leadership strategy and vision? Oh, sure. So I have, a, I have an interesting example. Uh, 
it's about subscription the world of subscription so you know every time i i uh, as as you know all of us have hundreds of subscriptions i don't know about you but i, I certainly <laughs> have i've signed up to so many things i don't even remember where where my money is going so every time i'd look at netflix and amazon prime and i'd i'd keep wondering how can i apply this logic to restaurant uh, industry and I'd, it wasn't very clear to me that it could be done you know because just the nature of uh, our businesses but i i kept thinking about it i'd discuss it with the with our colleagues and you know there was limited appetite for it uh people couldn't they said yeah it's interesting but it works in certain types of industries etc uh but this thing of recurring revenue model and basically building loyalty around what you do and and giving consumers you know disproportionate value for uh what they are paying which is not only about what they're paying but what they get for what they pay you know and the convenience and the ease of it so kept sort of thinking about it and then uh came the pandemic and um we came up with the first subscription idea and it's a very funny story uh, at panera bread which has become since then immensely successful so we we said okay we could actually you know why is premium coffee so expensive in the us uh, why don't we democratize coffee in the us and and say a subscription of 8.99 a month and you drink as much coffee as you want So that was the idea, a simple idea, and we said, you know, we have nothing to lose. Pandemic's happening, you know, our, our business is impacted. Why don't we try this out? So we sent out a. We just said, okay, let's see if there's kind of there's a pull for this idea. So we sent out a tweet and said, if we get, I forget what it was, maybe a hundred thousand yeses to this question, uh, we will do it. So the question was, hey America, would you like free coffee? <laughs> um, and the next morning we had, I think, over a million. Uh, responses i think 95% of them were yes believe it or not there were a few that said no <laughs> <laughs> i'm still trying to figure that out so encouraged by that we said oh wow this kind of resonates See, people want free coffee they want to democratize coffee okay so we started this uh, this subscription model and we gave 3 months free and then people had to pay it 99 and then, and this you know this this model has become uh, so profitable and such a big value driver is the first of its kind in the restaurant business so the way it works is to become a coffee subscriber you have to join a loyalty program and then what is happening is because people have paid they end up coming 8 to 10 times more frequently every month and they have a 30% incidence of attaching something yes, when they come sure. in yeah. a bakery product yes. sweet goods and all that kind of yeah. stuff and then we're also attracting new customers who never thought of panera as a coffee destination and they're suddenly saying hey wait what this is like 899 i'm going there because panera's food is fantastic so this is a, an example of you know how you take inspiration from something that is outside the industry try and apply it and then the timing has to be right uh, and the team has to be willing uh, to be embrace, to be able to embrace it and then activate it which was the case you know uh, with panera bread and and it's become immensely uh, popular uh, this this particular move Well there's so many lessons to unpack there right I mean starting with the power of social media of having a platform with which you're in communication with your community and your customers of really thinking about what value could we add to our customers in a difficult time right and how do we make sure that they know they can come back more frequently and democratizing like you said the coffee there's there's so many lessons to unpack our time is ending now I want to ask you one last question Nir and I thank you for your time and your generosity Uh, can you think of the moment, perhaps the exact moment, 
when you truly knew you were a leader. Maybe it was a good decision or a bad decision. It was a crisis or some kind of opportunity where you knew I am now a leader of people. I think, um, uh, firstly, I think my philosophy on leadership is to serve others. I think that's a very important mindset. Um, to help others, uh, you know, realize their full potential as I realize my own. So that's my mindset. Um, however, I, I do feel that I have an ability to connect with um, through empathy and respect and build relationships with people around me, uh, you know, because I'm very aware of who I am, how I show up, and I, I realize the importance uh, of, uh, of building trust. So here's the, here's the important catalyst. I think I realized very early on that whatever I want, I must be. If I want trust, mm. I must be trustworthy. You know, um, if I want collaboration, I must be collaborative. And uh, my first job, I was uh, working for the Intercontinental Hotels as an executive assistant manager, like a resident manager. And I was about 24, 25. It was my first job. I had about 1,000 people reporting into me. Most of them were older than I was. And I still found that just by remembering this, that the onus was always on me as a leader to do the work. I must do the work. I must build the bridges. I must build the relationships. I must be who I want to be, you know? And that, that mindset I saw very quickly helped me build the trust that I wanted to create and have the impact on the, on the people that I wanted to lead. And that has kind of stayed with me and, and is a core way in which I show up. Narin Chaudhry, CEO of Panera Brands, CEO also of Panera Bread and the companies that form your great family. Thank you for investing in our listeners and viewers around the world. So many great leadership insights. You have a book recommendation. You have a Netflix movie recommendation by today's guest. Tell us the name of your next book, because there's no question you should be writing one right now. And if you need a publisher, I'm happy to hook you up as well. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so sir. Much, Thank you for your time. And we'll see fun. you back here next week for a new conversation in the C-suite.